You'll turn with me to the first letter of the Apostle Peter and chapter 1. I think it is 1085 at the page number in your Pew Bibles. 1085 in the Pew Bibles and 1 Peter chapter 1. We want to consider verses 3 and 4 in particular, but I'm going to begin reading at the very first verse. 1 Peter 1 and verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. And then our text, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy had begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, but reserved in heaven for you. The life under the sun, by any standard of thought or imagination or reckoning, is not only difficult but meaningless without this transcendent or an eternal perspective. And that's what even the great and wise man in Ecclesiastes proclaims again and again and again. And that's what, of course, especially the secular mind and even others, even certain kinds of religion have this philosophy, eat, drink, make merry, and die. Eat, drink, and make merry, for tomorrow we die. But the Bible speaks about origin and meaning and the reason for man's creation. And above all, as we see in our text, it speaks to us about the eternal hope and the wondrous future that God has for sinners saved by grace. There's as much that can be said about the first two verses. And the very first thing, just by way of uh, context, is to remind us that the Apostle Peter is speaking in terms of the Christian life as a pilgrimage. Look how he begins. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, that can be literally translated to strangers and pilgrims. And he's thinking in terms of the great patriarchs who were but pilgrims 
Now, pilgrims are not tourists. You know, tourists wear funny hats and have all sorts of gadgets strung around their neck and they wear funny clothes and they're going from place to place. No, a pilgrim, unlike the tourist, is one who has left one destination and is traveling toward a certain destination. And that's what the patriarchs were. That's how the Israelites lived in the desert before they came to the land of Canaan. And Peter is framing the entire Christian life in the New Testament in exactly those terms. This is something we forget because we live in comfortable homes. We live in a very rich land, even though things are worsening. It's still one of the best countries to live in. And we have lost this biblical perspective that our citizenship is in heaven. Because in one sense, this is heaven for us. We have everything we need almost. Of course, we know something of our limitation, but Christian people are strangers and pilgrims. And they're scattered around the globe. That's the first thing he reminds them. That's a wonderful perspective and it's a realistic perspective and it's a perspective that we who are the people of God ought to remember. We might be citizens of this country and we must be legitimate citizens but our citizenship is in heaven and we have to set our minds on things above. That's how he begins. These are people who are suffering for their testimony and he reminds them that we are only pilgrims. And then we are told of this glorious work of the Trinity, elect according to the Father. This morning I said there's no such thing as unconditional love in the scriptures, but there is such a thing as unconditional election in the scriptures. Of course, that's in some sectors controversial. But what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that God has chosen us according to his own sovereign grace and not according to our merit. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit, that's the cleansing, first the awakening and then the calling and then the cleansing of the Spirit, unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, we saw this morning how uh, we... That, that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were asked to walk before him. Well, that's the component here of the faith, obedience to the faith by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, the great Trinitarian doctrine of salvation. Now, there are some sectors of the church that only likes to mention God the Holy Spirit. My father was a Pentecostal and many of my cousins Pentecostal and that's all they want to speak about especially they want to speak about a particular gift or a number of gifts they forget the rest of the Bible they're only interested in this and God the Holy Spirit not so much as a doctrine of God the Holy Spirit but the gifts of the Spirit and the experience then of course even as Lord Jones has said there is another section that only talks about Jesus 
So you see, the Bible talks about a God who is triune. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our salvation is the work of a triune God. God the Father appoints his Son to accomplish salvation. And God the Holy Spirit applies it to us. So it's already said, a mountain of eternal realities in the first two verses. And he's writing to people who are going through grievous trial. Verse 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire. And he speaks about grievous trouble uh, somewhere in that section. But it is a trial or by fire. And so he writes to encourage them. As I said, the first two verses are of immense encouragement. We are only pilgrims. We want to put down almost eternal roots here, but we are only pilgrims in this passing world. And our salvation is accomplished or undertaken by all three persons of the Trinity. Therein comes our security. And then he writes to comfort them in verses 3 and 4. And in the first instance, in verse 3, Peter is pointing them in an entirely different direction. Or, it might be better put, to an entirely different dimension. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Really, more than direction or dimension, He's pointing us to the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Eternal Father. And what's he saying about God the Father, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. He's given us new life. And of course, there are two principles, not two, we're not schizophrenic, But there are two life principles. There is the old principle remaining in us. It doesn't reign and rule, as we are taught in Romans and Galatians and so on. It remains in us. But God the Father has given us a new life. He's begotten us afresh. We're children of the eternal Father and destined for eternity. That's the first encouragement we have In verse 3, as I said, we already have these truths in the first two verses. But he's speaking about the blessedness of God the Father. And in particular, the blessing which he bestows upon us is that he has begotten us in his abundant mercy. Uh, Professor John Murray, if you've ever read any of his writings, it's not easy to read. He's very condensed. one of the great minds of the 20th century, one of the greatest of minds, he says this in his uh, collective writings uh, and also in his book, uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. He says this, that adoption is the highest blessing that God the Father has bestowed upon us. Think about it. God could have forgiven us without adopting us into his family by union with Christ. He could have brought us to heaven without adopting us into his family. But what he's done is, above and beyond forgiveness, 
we reduce salvation to all kinds of uh, secondary uh, truths sometimes. Yes, forgiveness, that itself is an infinite grace. But he's done much more than that. He's given us new life and he's adopted us into his family. Now we are the children of the living God. Now, how is that possible? Well, we can't know the exact mysteries of how God does things. We don't even know how our physiology functions, let alone our mind functions. But we know this. It's, with, it's because of the union with Christ. You know, when two people get married, there is a union that goes far beyond anything we can describe. It's a soul union, or it ought to be. It's the same thing with our uh, spiritual new birth. There is God spiritually unites us to Christ. It's one of the definitions of baptism. We are baptized into Christ. You know, we who uh, believe in uh, immersion or believers' baptism often stress that. But that's only a symbol. The reality is we are baptized into Christ. We are united to Christ. Or as the Apostle Paul says, uses in Romans 9 through to 11, we are grafted into him. And so the very first part of the encouragement is, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who because of his abundant mercy, overflowing mercy, we thought of Psalm 23, and that's what the psalmist says, my cup overflows. There's one thing to have enough to drink in a cup. It's another thing to have the cup shaken, pressed together, and overflowing. This is his overflowing mercy. He's begotten us to a new life. And when we think of God's grace to us, that he would so deal with sinners, we ought to praise him and bless him as we go on our pilgrimage. But he's done more than that. He has united us to Christ. He is, by begetting us again, what he has done is he has given us a lively hope. Look at verse 3 again. Unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I suppose it's the way the language is used, especially in olden times. But if you have notations in your Bible... Uh, I have uh, an authorized uh, or King James version. It's quite an interesting. It's not part of the sermon, but I'm I'm particularly touched by it. This is my father's old Bible. It's the first time I'm using it to preach from it. But even in this, it has a note that says, living hope. A lively hope, but better put, a living hope. And what is this living hope? It tells us, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this is very interesting, because let's think about who wrote this epistle. As you know, it's the apostle Peter who wrote this epistle. And apostle Peter, along with the other apostles, knew what it was to experience a complete darkness and loss of hope. Think about uh, what 
took place in the life of the Apostle Peter. For three and a half years, he was privileged to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Not only a disciple, but one of the twelve. And the Lord Jesus was a peripatetic teacher. In other words, he walked and the disciples followed him. It's not teaching like we have today. Well, today it's even worse. It's mostly online. And if you go to school, there are so many teacher-free days. But these, these are teachings in an intimate form. And they'd come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the divine Messiah. All their hopes were in him. And then came that dreadful day in which he was betrayed. He was arrested and then the very next day put upon a cross and he dies. This is the same Jesus who pronounced the great I am's. This is the same Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Remember, he did not just say that I can resurrect, I can give resurrection, I have the power of resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who said, no one can take my life from me. So you can only imagine the darkness of their hope and their lives. Some years ago, many decades ago, I hope you don't mind me quoting a pop singer, but there used to be a singer called Don McLean, and he wrote a song called The Day the Music Died. It was all about one of the great icons who died in a plane crash. And he writes this soulful music. It's a very famous song throughout the world the day the music died, and he's speaking of the world being without music, or at least the music of this person. Now think about for a moment, if there was no music in the world, I'm not just talking about the junk of most of what is called music these days, but think about the gift of music that God has given to his creatures. And if there was no music, what a dark and hopeless world it would be. Even sad and soulful music somehow seems to express our mood and relieve us of tension and it soothes our soul. But of course, this is in terms of the Lord Jesus himself. He knew what it was to experience hopelessness. But the disciples, including Peter, entered into a dark and hopeless state. Now, you might have had people who are closest to you die. It's one thing when a child loses a parent, especially if the son or daughter is grown up, you expect that. But think of as someone who is closest to you. It can happen to single people. You might have a great and bosom friend and you lose him or her. The darkness of that can be unbearable. I've witnessed people who've lost a pet and seem to be unconsolable, a little bit um, so affected. But think about losing a loved one. Well, none of us 
And none of those sorrows can compare to the darkness and hopelessness that the apostles experienced when they saw the arrest and the blasphemy against him and the treatment that he received and then his death. No one can express the darkness and the lostness of hope than the Apostle Peter. Then add this to Peter's hopelessness and darkness. He betrayed him three times. He swore and betrayed him three times. And he must have lived with, well, he did live with that. All through Thursday night, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, he's entered into the darkest of hopelessness. And then read our text. Begotten us again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's not only Peter, it's also the other apostles, but especially Peter who denied him. And this darkness and the death of all hope becomes a living hope. And it's not a living hope because merely of the promises of the Old Testament. That's true and that's enough. But he's tying it to the person and the work of the resurrection of Christ. In other words, he's saying that because Christ lives, his hope is living. And then, of course, you know how he was restored. The Lord comes to him and he restores him. First, by going through a series of confessions. He denied him three times. He questions him three times. See, we live in an age of superficiality. Our repentance is superficial. Our preaching on repentance is superficial. But the Lord does not deal in a superficial manner. He deals with him as is needed. And the glorious resurrection of Christ becomes Peter's living hope. In fact, the Lord Jesus, right throughout his ministry, brings this up. He speaks about his death and his resurrection, according to the scriptures. What's interesting is that, by and large, the apostles could not grasp it. And we mustn't think we are somehow superior or more enlightened than them. First and foremost, they couldn't understand a suffering Messiah and a crucified or a dying Messiah. That was not in their imagination. By the way, there are large sections of the church that only speaks about triumphalism and victory. They have no theology of suffering, even now. But then he spoke of his resurrection. Repeatedly, we are told in the scriptures, he's taught them about his death. He must go to Jerusalem, suffer and die, and then be raised again on the third day, when none of those things registered until his resurrection. And when he was resurrected, he taught them from the scriptures, from the Old Testament. We have the inkling of that even in Genesis chapter 3, but right throughout the scriptures in the Psalms, Uh, We have it uh, in types of Joseph and his life. We have it, of course, in Isaiah, the great uh, servant song, and Psalm 50, uh, Isaiah 53. So now 
his hope is tied to the scriptures and the living Christ to which the scriptures prophesy. So when we think about ourselves, when we think about our hope, our hope is not tied simply in propositions. Propositions are important. That is truth claims or the promises of scripture. They're absolutely important. They're foundational. Our faith is built on the prophets and the apostles, meaning the prophetic writings and the apostolic writings. But what they confirm is that Christ would not only come and die, but he would rise again. So where does our hope and our certainty lie? In the resurrected Christ. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, as I'm sure you've done, Paul lists all the eyewitnesses, and he begins with the witness of the prophetic scriptures, that is the Old Testament scriptures. And so when Peter looks at his hopelessness in sin, the hopelessness of his life, he looks to the living Christ. And not only that, he's thinking also of his own sin, isn't it? It is the death and the resurrection of Christ that brings the power of God to forgive the Apostle Peter. We can have loss of hope or diminishing of hope when we fall into sin. And sin can be something grievous. It can be just grievous like not attending church, not attending to the means of grace. It can be a public sin like Peter's was and David's was. Or as I said this morning, it might be a sin of just numb distance from the God of grace. But in all this, our great hope is in the one who is living. It's not hope in the abstract sense. Our hope is the living Christ. That's what he says here. The living hope by the resurrection of Christ. And so we can look to him in the time of our sinfulness, in the time of our darkness, and even in the time of our death. And even on judgment day, as some of you might have had a crisis in your life in 2013, December, I nearly died for about 30 to 40 minutes. I couldn't breathe. And I was thinking of verses. And the first thing that I thought about was I was concerned for my wife, but then I started to think that I'm not ready in myself to face God. But what is our hope? Our hope is this, the living Christ. On judgment day, we point to him who is our sacrifice, who is our mediator, and who is our righteousness. And so he encourages uh, these people, and not only these people, but the people of God through all ages. Our hope is the living Christ. And the evidence of that is his resurrection from the dead based on the prophetic scriptures and the eyewitnesses. And then verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that faded not. He is pointing us to the great inheritance which we have in Christ. Really our inheritance in the highest sense is God himself. You remember how Jeremiah says, the portion of Jacob 
that is Jacob, Israel, the second son of Isaac, the portion of Israel standing for the whole of God's people is not like unto them. For he is the maker and the former of all things. In other words, our inheritance is God himself. It's not that we will have a mansion, which is not what the text actually says. We will, there are many dwelling places. We live in our father's house. That's wonderful. But our inheritance is God himself. God is our portion. Just like the basis of the covenant is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And what kind of inheritance is that? It's an incorruptible inheritance. You know what's the big problem in the world and for ourselves? It's the corruption within, isn't it? The thing that troubles any of us at our best times when we're thinking biblically and understanding ourselves is the internal corruption. Yes, we see corruption outside. We see bad behavior in the church. That's to put it mildly. And some of the terrible things happen even among believers. We see it in the New Testament. We see it throughout the church. It's all because of internal corruption. Things that begin well is soiled by corruption. Pride and self. And lust of all kinds. But the inheritance that God has reserved for us is incorruptible. And then says undefiled. Well, the great prophet Isaiah at his highest moment of revelation as he sees the holy God, God who is holy, holy, holy. The first thing he does is pronounce a woe upon himself. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. That's a way of saying I have an unclean heart. The lips express what's in the heart. Why? Because he sees his defilement. Not only does things corrupt in this life, our body is subject to corruption, both physically and morally, but there is a defilement. But God's inheritance for us is undefiled. There will be no sin and its defilement, and that which fadeth not away. Well, everything in this world fades away, doesn't it? Think of all the good gifts that God has given. Think of our own bodies as we age. Our hair falls out, we need glasses. And some of us lose eyesight periodically or incrementally. Our body is no longer what it used to be. It's all fading away. What about the wonderful things we used to enjoy. Well, we lose the capacity for enjoyment and the things that deliver pleasure do not deliver it in the same way and in the same quantity as before because these are all fading. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews tells us that there is a passing pleasure of sin. Sin does deliver pleasure, but it promises far more than can deliver. It costs far more than we are able to pay and it's never satisfying because everything in this world fades. 
But the inheritance that God has for us is unfading. I don't want to take much more of your time, but look at what verse 5 says. Who are kept by the power of God. Verse 4 ends by saying, reserved in heaven for you. God reserves our inheritance in heaven for us. In verse 5 he says, God keeps us for that inheritance. And so what should we do? Well, we should do exactly what the apostle Peter is saying here respond by saying blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and that's what worship is isn't it we're not adding anything to God by blessing him God blesses us he gives us actual blessings and adds to our comfort in life all we do when we say blessed is God we mean that he is the God of all blessing he's blessed in himself and he's the source of all our blessing. And it's all tied up in the living Christ. And the table here speaks of his death, but it also speaks of his resurrection. Because when the Lord Jesus instituted it, he said, until I eat it with you in the new heavens and the new earth. Do it until I come. It speaks about the death. It also speaks about the resurrection. And it speaks about the eternal table around which we will gather from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and sit around the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Matthew 8 and 11. One of the greatest descriptions in concrete terms of what awaits us. The death, the resurrection, and the eternal inheritance and communion of God's people with God himself through Jesus Christ. Well, what more can we say? then blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us. Our time has gone, but let me say one more thing. How do we know we are begotten by God? It's a matter of assurance and certainty, isn't it? How do we know? Can we know because we're preachers? I know a friend of mine whose father, after about 12 ministers, 12 years of being a pastor, in a Presbyterian church, was converted by his own preaching. No, that is not our certainty. How do we know? Well, we know it this way. Just as a baby, when it's born, has appetites and cries, if we have the inclination to pray and to call upon God, pray according to the scriptures, the word of God is like meat and also pure milk. Desire earnestly if we have a desire for the word of God, some sort of desire, consistently, if we call upon his name. See, these are indications of the fact that God has given us a new life, new appetites. And so may we trust in him and bless the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to close in prayer and I will also, oh yes, of course, hymn number 107. And then I'll close in prayer and give thanks for the elements. <laughs>